Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Well, David, it's good to have you back in the War Room. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to be with you, Ryan. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Okay, so you might remember this. We recorded a panel deal about two years ago. Yourself, Bill Bishop, Leaning Way, uh, Chris Fitton. And I think, if I, I remember correctly, you or maybe the panel at large said that it was the lowest as far as U.S.-China relations at that time. I'm not sure it's gotten better or worse, but is it the same, better, worse? What's changed, if anything, in the past two years? Well, um, I think I do remember that. It was a great discussion. And um, I do think that the consensus was that things were at a low watermark uh, at that time. And I think it was true then. I think we are still at a low watermark. It's probably, in some ways, I think, lower than it was then. I think, um, I don't know if we've reached the bottom yet or what the bottom looks like, uh, but uh, things are still bad. Uh, the lack of trust is profound. Um, the uh, uh, level of vitriol um, in coming from both countries uh, is uh, pretty close to an all, all-time high. I think the overall trend lines that we saw at that time uh, continue to the present day. Um, the things that China was doing that um, were causing alarm and very deep levels of concern in the United States are continuing. I think by the same token, the United States continues to do things uh, that uh, cause tremendous consternation on the Chinese side, for example, with respect to the issue of Taiwan, which has been a, a, a big issue in recent months, as we all know. So, yeah, I think things are uh, things remain very difficult um, and, and the relationship remains very fraught, very strained. Uh, and, um, I think the, the level of trust is, I would still, I would continue to say, as I think I said then, and I think it's as true now as it, as it has been in recent years, that overall the level of mutual trust is probably lower today than any time since before normalization. So, um, it's a difficult situation. I don't see it getting much better anytime soon. Okay. Let's unpack the the trust and the perspectives. We had Noam Chomsky on a while back and he argued um, that from his perspective, that a lot of what we hear about China is U.S. propaganda or British propaganda. So that they're not really looking to invade. They're not really trying to take over the world. Um, and so his frustration is that the U.S. is putting this messaging out. We'll go to the U.S. frustrations in a second. I think most listeners would be um, familiar with that. But what are, or is Chomsky right? What is the frustration from the CCP side, the China side, um, towards the U.S. side? Well, there, there are different ways to answer that. I mean, I think there's specific issues and specific actions uh, and policies that the United States has in place, actions that the U.S. is taking that cause um, serious um, frustration, alarm on the Chinese side. But then there's also the broader issue of the type that uh, Dr. Chomsky was talking about that you referenced, which is I think uh, many people in China do look at um, the United States and see uh, a narrative that has taken hold in this country that 
uh, I think genuinely really strikes them as odd and off base. Um, and, um, you know, again, China has its perspective on the world, has its values. Uh, there's a there's a profound gap in in the in the political values between the United States and China, between our systems and so on. But I, I really do think that that a lot of Chinese genuinely look at the United States and are perplexed that the United States has allowed this um, very uh, specific negative narrative about China and its global ambitions and its strategic intentions to take hold. And um, I think there is merit to what Dr. Chomsky uh, has said. I've said similar things um, in broad terms about China. I don't think that China uh, is uh, intent on uh, displacing and supplanting the United States as the world's only superpower, as we define the term superpower. And I could go through the long list of things that China doesn't want to do that we do want to do, such as policing the world, having troops in a couple of hundred countries or 150 countries, having bases everywhere, having targets on our back placed there by ISIS and Al Qaeda, funding the world. Um, you know, writing human rights reports about everybody, um, sitting in judgment of every country in the world and so on. China doesn't give a damn about a lot of these things. And uh, the idea that they want to replace us and be us and be America 2.0, I think is a uniquely American idea, but I don't think it is a Chinese idea. So in that regard, I would tend to agree with uh, Dr. Chomsky's assessment as you've characterized it. Um, and I think there is just this reflexive and ideological and, and I would say raw and emotional tendency in the United States today that's largely driven by our politics and the politics of China in the context of the U.S. domestical, domestic political um, um, context that, uh, you know, everything China does by definition is horrible and is inimical to our interests and is um, nefarious and is wrong. And I think a lot of things that China does are wrong, but I don't. I don't think that every single thing that they do is designed to destroy America. And I think there is a significant swath of our political establishment and uh, general public that believes that. And I think that that concern is overblown. Yes, and I'll conclude with this for, for purposes here. Yes, China is the most formidable competitor that the United States will ever face in the lifetimes of every American breathing today. I don't think there's any question about that. We have to really bring our A game to be able to compete with a formidable competitor of, of China's uh, capabilities. But that said, um, they are not, uh, you know, uh, they're not going to destroy the United States. They're not, I don't think they're intent on destroying the United States or fundamentally undermining us. I think they want to be a strong and powerful nation. We want to be a strong and powerful nation. We want primacy and supremacy. They want multipolarity. There are some doctrinal tensions. We have to cope with those. But um, I do think uh, Dr. Chomsky's on to something when he says that there is a kind of um, a somewhat overblown reaction to China. And the last thing I'll say is, Yes, we have to be cognizant that China is an incredibly formidable competitor, but uh, you know we don't need to overstate the case. We just need to focus on the reality of the of the competitive uh, 
um, challenge that China poses to the United States. And above all, we need to focus on enhancing our own cap- uh, capabilities in order to outcompete and defeat China in in peaceful and 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 fair and rule based competition. Yeah, and I think it's hard for the average American to maybe hear Chomsky or or what you're saying and go, oh, well, I don't. How could you ever come to that conclusion? So I'll, I'll give a quick story here. I was talking to a dear friend of mine from South Africa one time. And he was talking about doing business in Iran. He wanted me to help him with something. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I can't do business in Iran. Like that's, it's illegal basically for me to, to try to do something like that, um, which I think is ludicrous, but it's, it's still the law. Um, and he goes, yeah, you are a bunch of bullies <laughs> and talking about the, the U.S. federal government. And so there is this weird tension. Um, should the U.S. be the world's police? It definitely makes itself the world's police. How many people like that and respect that? But when you take that moniker of the world's police, um, all of a sudden your perspective of what the world's doing is from that vantage point. And so the, so it's, it's fundamentally different. So I'm sure we'll talk about some of this other stuff in a minute, but um, I, I do think that more Americans, first off, there is just, um, we've gotten to the spot in the U S where we assert things without actually proving that that's the right position. So whether the U S should be the world's police or not, or should the world have a police, those are all, very interesting questions. Um, but there's no doubt the U S is at the top. Um, as you mentioned, how you define that, whether someone can overtake it or not, are all questions that you could ask, but you get into things like Taiwan. You brought Taiwan up a minute ago. Um, in my frustration on Taiwan is this, and you're the expert here. So I want you to tell me where I'm wrong. China, um, the people's Republic of China, um, has used Taiwan historically, it seems as a leverage point, a distraction from maybe other things that are going on. Um, it seemed that Mao did this at some points. Um, and so when we talk about Taiwan and what's going on there, I'm always torn with how much of this is current propaganda from both sides and how much of this is actually Xi Jinping wanting to go into a potential hot war with the West uh, over Taiwan. So do you agree with the assessment that Taiwan has been used as a political football, maybe by both sides? Um, and then how do you read the tea leaves on what might be happening there. Well, I do agree, Ryan, that I think both the United States and China uh, have used Taiwan for domestic political purposes in a variety of ways, um, in different ways. But uh, I don't think there's any question in my mind, and I've said this in talks that I've given on Taiwan recently, that you know I think the way to understand the current U.S. approach to Taiwan, speaking first from a U.S. vantage, is to understand that um, Taiwan really is a function of the politics, the U.S. domestic politics of China and how various U.S. national leaders, whether it's the president, whether it's the Speaker of the House, whether it's uh, various others in Washington, how they speak about and act relative to the issue of Taiwan, I think, is mostly driven by domestic political um, considerations. I think it is also true, as you've noted, that China has its own agenda, obviously, with respect to Taiwan and has played the Taiwan card um, in its own ways. Um, Obviously, its fundamental perspective on Taiwan is very different from that of the United States. But I I think it's fair to say that there is a politics uh, at work with respect to China's own actions toward Taiwan. And um, I think they do see the issue of Taiwan as something that can galvanize uh, public support uh, in China uh, for the party, for the party's leadership, for the notion of, as they would put it, reunification and so on. So I, I do think politics are 
um, driving a lot of the action on both sides, on both the Chinese side on the one hand and the U.S. side on the other. Um, as for sort of looking ahead uh, and assessing the uh, possibility or likelihood of conflagration across the Taiwan Strait, you know, I'll say here what I've uh, said oftentimes over the years, which is that I really do not foresee a situation in which the leadership of China looks at the Taiwan situation and judges that the that the benefits of going into Taiwan are, are going to outweigh the costs. I think they are pretty clear headed. I think they do a cost benefit analysis, as I often put it every day that uh, the Chinese leadership wakes up and doesn't go into Taiwan militarily is a day that evidently they've concluded that the costs of doing so outweigh the benefits of doing so. And by definition, that's why they don't do it. And I don't think that calculus is going to change anytime soon. And in fact, I think probably the single best way of summarizing U.S. policy toward Taiwan is to say that within the constraints of extending formal diplomatic recognition to the People's Republic of China, as the United States currently does and has done since 1979, within those constraints, the United States policy, in my judgment, is to make... um, to make it as difficult to make sure to ma- to ensure that the costs always outweigh the benefits and that the perceived costs the costs perceived by the Chinese leadership of going into Taiwan will exceed the perceived benefits that's what the United States is trying to do and every single thing that we do relative to Taiwan whether it's arms sales whether it's acts of political symbolism visits and so on uh, and in a variety of other ways, I think the United States uh, clearly does not want to see reunification, no question about it, and clearly will do everything in its power to gum up the works and, and make sure that doesn't happen. I think that's not the stated policy, but I think there's no question yeah. but that that is the reality. And um, and so, you know, I think this issue is very much at loggerheads, but the point that I would make is that for these reasons, I just see it as extremely unlikely that China would come to the judgment anytime in the foreseeable future that the that the uh, the benefits of militarily taking over Taiwan and forcing it through the use of force through through the through the force of arms back into the fold would ever outweigh the costs and therefore I think the status quo is going to obtain for a very long time to come much longer I think than the conventional wisdom in Washington today posits is the case. I've argued in the past, as I argued, I've, I've thrown out that perhaps um, if China was to um, try to invade Taiwan and lost, it, it could be, could it be detrimental to the point of Xi Jinping couldn't be able to keep his hold on power? To me, that seems to be the actual stake. If he loses um, that, that conflict, he could be, I don't know, dethroned or whatever, removed from office. It would seem to be like that's actually the stakes at hand. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very sound analysis. I think uh, I, I would agree that um, the stakes with respect to Taiwan are very high, and I think it goes to regime stability. And I I, I think the one thing that I think we all understand those those of us like yourself and, and and myself and others that understand China understand that what I would call the first principle of Chinese government of governance, the first principle of Chinese governance is the maintenance of the permanent monopoly on power of the Communist Party of China, period. And anything that uh, tends to advance that goal uh, is, a, is something that 
the, the leadership in China would tend to be in favor of. Anything that undermines that goal would tend to be something that China doesn't do. To your point, I think that uh, the leadership of China understands that the notion of going into Taiwan is extraordinarily risky in a variety of ways. And it could be one of the very, very few things that could generate regime change uh, in China and the end of Communist Party rule if things developed in a certain way, if China were to lose, if it were to be humiliated, if it were to suffer a major military defeat, and the list goes on. And so, yes, Ryan, I would agree with your take. I, I think that that is probably the most cautionary consideration for the Chinese leadership is that the risk um, is incredible and probably just not worth taking. Uh, for the foreseeable future. And so uh, I think that's a major argument um, against doing something dramatic to fundamentally alter the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. And one more thing on just the Taiwan in general. Speaker Pelosi went, um, God, what was that, back this summer? I, I try to remember now. Early, early but, August, yeah. Yeah, okay. The For me, the frustration was... Um, First off, there's a buildup of anticipation of something bad happening, right? And so you kind of there's this media circus around it, and then then there's a debate over whether or not uh, she should have went. Um, and then there was some commentators saying, "Well, now China's sending their fighters over here, so she's provoking them." And, and I think that's a microcosm of the propaganda on both sides of what's going on here. Um, I am not a policy expert, so I'm not going to say. From a policy standpoint, whether she should win or not, I am a very much a free person expert. <laughs> and from a from the ability to move freely across the world, she should be able to go without provoking anyone. To me, that's kind of a nonsensical argument from either side. Um, that someone landing somewhere is a is a, is a provocation uh, in this context, especially she can't she can't marshal the troops or anything. She's just a politician. Um, but ultimately, nothing happened, right? There, and so. You, you see these events and people say, well, this is going to be the one, this is going to be the one. And it seems to me that both sides realize that if we go over the edge, if we go over the edge, we might not be able to stop it. And so um, I think that would be a good example of a lot of hype, but maybe a lot of smoke, but no real fire there. Yeah. Well, I, I would agree with that analysis, Ryan. I, a couple of things that I would say, one, um, you know, I actually staked out and, and, and the Bush China Foundation actually staked out an, an interesting position on this particular issue, which is that, you know, in my judgment, um, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was consistent with U.S. policy, namely the U.S. one China policy, as the U.S. Uh, understands, defines and executes that policy. In other words, nothing about the visit of the Speaker of the House or any other American um, it conveys formal diplomatic recognition to the quote Republic of China unquote. The mere fact of a visit doesn't is not tantamount to the extension of formal diplomatic recognition, and therefore, any U.S. citizen can um, certainly under U.S. law travel to Taiwan, and it doesn't change the fact that the United States United States still recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China. And that is what we've done since January 1st, 1979. So this doesn't change that. But at the same time, there is, I think, a very fair question as to you know whether this uh, visit, even if it's consistent, as I argue, with U.S. policy, whether it was a good idea, whether it was a bad idea, and more fundamentally and more specifically, 
whether or not it advances any uh, specific U.S. interest. And I think um, certainly a strong argument could be made that um, it didn't advance any specific um, interests of the United States, but in some ways undermined U.S. interests and arguably undermined the interests of, of our good friends in Taiwan. And there can be debate about that. Um, but I think anyone arguing that this somehow advances U.S. interests would have a difficult time marshalling evidence to support that assertion. The other thing I would mention in, res in response to your latter point is that um, I think both the United States and China well understand that um, a conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan, or for that matter, any other issue, but uh, Taiwan being the likeliest uh, impetus for a a direct conflict, um, that that is that would generate a a conflict between two nuclear armed states uh, with intercontinental reach, and you know even as we saw in the case of Russia's uh, unlawful, illegal, uh, unprovoked, unjustified, deplorable, and shameful invasion of Ukraine, even in that instance, the United States uh, made it very clear. President of the United States Joe Biden made it very clear on day one that we were not going to directly fight the Russians over Ukraine. And by the way, Ukraine is a country we recognize <laughs> and have diplomatic relations with, but we weren't going to do it simply because of two words, nuclear deterrence Russia and mutual assured destruction. Russia has an arsenal uh, that could lay waste to our nation. We have an arsenal that could lay waste to their nation. We're just not going to risk at any level fighting a nuclear World War III over Ukraine. I think it would be difficult to argue uh, for anyone that's looking at this dispassionately, that the United States would approach the issue of Taiwan differently than we've approached the issue of Ukraine. And bear in mind, we don't even have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Now, I understand Taiwan is important to the United States, uh, and it is a, a great partner. It's a great friend. It is a fellow democracy, and there are a lot of things to admire about Taiwan. But for the same reasons that we didn't go into Russia, I think it is very unlikely you know, we would go into a conflict with China over Taiwan, because again, the risks of uh, escalation, including to the nuclear level, uh, are there. And um, I just don't think either the United States or China has any appetite for that. So um, to my mind, you know, the principle of nuclear deterrence, the notion of mutual assured destruction, Look, it's the reason why there hasn't been a major conflict between two nuclear weapon states subsequent to uh, 1945. And I just don't see it happening um, uh, because of that because of that fundamental reason. Okay. So you mentioned, um, going back to Pelosi, um, tattoo threads here together, that it, it's hard to argue it advanced our interest. And okay, that's, I think that's probably a fair point. The question that I have, though, is... Uh, Early on, you said there's a, a low watermark. Mutual trust has eroded. It seems that the U.S. and China both will do what they want when they want to do it. They, they, they seem to do their own thing. So while I'm happy to grant that Pelosi's visit might not have furthered interest, if both states are going to act autonomously when they want to, how then do we build mutual trust? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, one thing that's clear, I think, from the last several years is um, it's not clear that either side wants to build greater levels of mutual trust at this point. I think there is a per pervasive mistrust of the other side, whether it's the U.S. toward China or China toward the United States. 
Um, and you know, I think one of the th- you know one of the things I point out about trust in international relations is that trust between nations is an unnatural state of affairs. It's something you have to work hard over a long period of time to build. It is not the default position, and it takes time. It takes the desire to build it, and I think that that desire is clearly lacking, certainly in the United States relative to China. And arguably in China, relative to how they look at the United States, um, but I think you're right, Ryan. That that you know the United States and China are going to do what they want when they want to. They're big, powerful countries um, that uh, are both you know nuclear weapon states with major league economies and and, and technological uh, capacity and so on. And um, China is going to do what it wants and our ability as a nation in the United States to fundamentally influence China's decisions, I think is very limited. We're going to do what we damn well please. And China's ability to stop us from doing that is very limited. And I think you've correctly articulated the state of affairs that to put it a different, your essential point, a different way, both the United States and China, in my judgment, are um, self-defined, self-proclaimed exceptional countries. They, I think both countries think of themselves as exceptional. The United States does so very explicitly. China does so less explicitly, but it is also true. And, and, and the definition I use of an exceptional nation is a country that thinks that the rules that apply to others don't apply to it um, all the time or don't necessarily apply to, to it. And I think there's no question the United States feels that way. But I also think there's no question that China feels that way. And that's why it does a lot of the things that it does. And when you have two exceptional powers dealing with each other, there's going to be a lot of sparks that fly. And that's the dynamic we have between the United States and China today. So part of the the issue that's tied up here, um, as you mentioned, um, unity amongst nations, getting along, working together. Um, you, you can see that ideas um policies and stuff, um, the closer they are to power, the more heated they get. So if me and you want to disagree over uh, a policy about U.S.-China relations, probably not get too heated because at least I'm not influencing that policy. <laughs> you might be, but I'm not. Okay, I have nothing. No one's listening to me. Um, but but if we were at a local school board meeting and we're before the school board over some lunchtime policy, it could get pretty heated because we're really close to the decision makers uh, in influencing policy. So when I think of the United Nations, let's just pick them, for example, um, those organizations would feel this probably more so than other spots because you have these two powers that are there that are that are going to want to do their own thing, want to exert their will. Can we continue to exist in a world where the UN has relevance if the U.S. has done what it wants for a long time? But now if China is going to do what it wants to do as well, can something like the UN bring these countries together to coexist? Or is it an old model, maybe a one superpower model that's kind of faded away now? Well, I think the um, the efficacy of the United Nations um, is really dependent on the willingness of, in particular, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council to allow the UN to do anything. Because by definition, the five uh, veto-wielding permanent members uh, have the ability to shut down just about anything that the United Nations could do, certainly anything binding or anything significant. And of course, China, along with the United States and Russia and uh, and uh, England and, and, and France, are um, 
are are those are, are you know players there and so by definition you know one of the one of the points that is often made about china is that it is some sort of revisionist power that wants to change how the world uh, works and change the global um, international relations architecture and so on. And one of the points I've made is that I don't think China has any interest in doing that because in many ways, the global architecture um, gives China a privileged position, uh, specifically the United Nations does, because China can veto anything that it wants to veto. And in, by definition, the UN will never do anything that China doesn't want it to do. Same for us. Um, and so you know, I think what that means is that when it comes to the United Nations doing anything that is what the U.S. wants, but not what China wants, or what China wants, but not the U.S., or what Russia wants, but not the U.S. or China, or any combination thereof, um, it's not going to happen by definition because of the way that the U.N. is fundamentally organized um, and the fundamental process However, what it also means is that when all of these powers can actually agree on something, which seems to be a rarity nowadays, but it can happen, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, countering terrorism, which has been, which was the big theme for most of the last 20 years, um, and a few other issues, uh, there, you know, pandemics, arguably piracy on the high seas or various other things. There are things where the United Nations uh, or, or peacekeeping in certain countries where no, none of the great powers, uh, the P, the P5 powers, have uh, conflicting interests, um, and there are some cases like that. Then there are there is a role for the UN, and, and there there are ways to harness these different countries and their their capabilities to you know make the world a better place. But I think the scope of of uh, of that type of activity is much more limited today than it was in years past because. All of the countries, the United States and Russia and China, in particular, those three, are very assertive. Um, you know, there's a, lot, a narrative in this country that somehow it's bizarre and, and, and unseemly that China is assertive. But what I learned uh, in my uh, study of international relations at Georgetown University is that interests are a function of power. And as a country becomes more powerful, it's going to contend to con define and construe and act upon its interests in a way that's more expansive. And that's what we see with China. It's what we saw with us in recent decades. It's what we have seen with Russia. It's nothing that should surprise any of us. And we just have to understand that that's the world we live in. And we have to focus on the only thing we can actually control, which is how to uh, in enhance our own competitive capabilities so that we can defeat some of these competitors in, in peaceful and, and free, uh, fr fair and rule-based competition. Mm. So, when you think about, you mentioned Russia a few times. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Russia, China, U.S. Um, many people in the U.S. are concerned that maybe Russia and China are going to form this big alliance. That that's part of what's going on here. Um, that this is actually maybe even a test. The Ukraine-Russia war is a test to see the U.S.'s response, so that China could invade Taiwan or, or do something else. Um, um, I think those are fair questions to ask, but doesn't mean that they're actually legitimate. What are your thoughts? Is this is there some kind of alliance forming between the, uh, the Russia and China against the U.S. or, or the West at large? Well, the, as you point out, the, there certainly is a concern about that uh, subsequent to the early February uh, summit between the leaders of the two nations. And then very shortly after that, Russia went into Ukraine. And so understandably, you know, there's a concern about, you know, is there some type of alliance or if I can use the loaded term axis, uh, quote unquote, that's forming between these two countries? 
you know, uh, look, there's no question that China and Russia now have a fairly friendly relationship, friendlier than it has been in recent years or recent decades. Uh, it's still not a military alliance. Um, I don't think it is going to become a military alliance. I don't think um, the two countries' interests are um, in sufficient alignment to generate um, the foundation that you need to have two countries come together and say, let us literally pledge to die for each other on the battlefield in the same way that Article 5 of NATO you know, says all for one and one for all and so on. I just don't think that's there for a variety of reasons. Um, but it is true that, that the fundamental interest that I think both China and Russia share is that they both want multipolarity. And frankly, the United States wants unipolarity. And we say that as a matter of national security doctrine. We come out and actually say it. We, we want primacy. We want supremacy. We want to be the biggest, baddest player in the world. Um, a lot of Americans are behind that. There are some Americans that think that's not a good idea. Um, but uh, certainly it is the official ideology of our nation that we need to be number one. And China and Russia both reject that. They want to be co-equal poles in a multipolar system. They want to get their fair share of uh, say in how global rules are formulated and so on and so forth. Uh, certainly China has made that clear. And so, um, yes, there is um, some uh, amity and some friendship between those two countries, but I, I don't I don't have a lot of concern that that is going to evolve in a direction of a a U.S. focused military alliance per se. I think there are people that are concerned that that could materialize. I don't share that concern. Um, but uh, and and by the way, one data point as, that I think exemplifies this is when it came to a vote in the United Nations just a couple of weeks ago as to who among the 193 member states of the UN. Uh, recognize Russia's, quote, annexation, unquote, of the four territories of Ukraine, not not including Crimea itself, only four countries voted with Russia. But China was one of the countries that did not vote with Russia. They abstained, but they did not cast a yay vote. And I think, again, if there were more of a relationship there, then they would have cast a yay vote. The fact right. that they didn't is illustrative of the point that I'm making. Right. They're, they're not necessarily... And, and this... It's these data points that make these conversations so tough because you can carve out a bunch of data points and go, wow, here's a narrative. But then you have something like that no vote, the, 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 the abstaining. Clearly, when it comes to the UN, it doesn't seem that China is afraid to make their, their thoughts known at times. And so it's hard to say, well, oh, well, with this, they start playing chess. They're out thinking us. So it would seem far more likely that they could have voted yes um, if they wanted to make that forceful statement. Um especially since both people uh, or many people might, might suspect that to be the case. So, um, but I think the bigger threat may be um, not necessarily military alliance, but um, you know, the potential for some kind of alliance like that um, on, on, on the, on um, putting pressure on the U S reserve currency status. To me, that would be the, um, the U S is bigger concern if, those nations tried to put a threat on the reserve currency because the reserve currency, quite frankly, seems to be the biggest weapon the U.S. has is being able to wield its power uh, via the reserve, the dollar all over the world and kind of influence things, um, make nations bow to it <laughs> on the reserve currency. I don't know if the, I, and I've gotten mixed motions on whether or not 
China is interested in the reserve currency with the, the, uh, the uh, digital yuan or, or whatever. But um, to me, that would be the, the bigger threat, maybe not necessarily straight up military, but uh, pressure on the reserve currency status. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very legitimate point. And certainly China has indicated that it has aspirations in, in the direction of decreasing its reliance on the United States overall, just as we're in this country seemingly trying to move uh, aggressively away from what is regarded as an undue um, uh, reliance on China and the global supply chains and so on. And I think both countries are recognizing that the other country is is not a reliable partner in certain ways, or at least there's certainly a strong perception in both directions uh, that that is so. And, and so I think uh, with respect to digital currency um, and the point that you're making, I think China certainly is thinking in those terms or probably thinking longer term as they typically do than we are in this country. And whether Russia really factors into that given the state of its economy is, is more of a question mark, but I think that China certainly is thinking in those terms. But I think more generally, you know, the, the thing that China and Russia both agree on is um, they're tired of uh, operating within a U.S.-led system. Uh, and let's make no mistake, when the United States says that we want a rules-based order, what we actually are saying is we want a U.S.-led order. And because we created most of the rules, and we think our rules are the rules that every country should accept. Um, <clears throat> and uh, increasingly, there are countries out there that are powerful enough to to buck that um, uh, that assertion and that idea and to say, look, we have a different view about the rules that should govern um, how countries interact with each other and so on. China is probably the leading country in that regard in terms of proposing uh, or, or having a vision for a system in which it is not so dominated by any one particular country. Um, it's a vision of multipolarity. It's certainly a vision of a strong and powerful China that doesn't have to take guff from anyone. And that causes a lot of alarm in this country. Um, but, you know, in a sense, we're, um, we're, we're, we're alarmed by the fact that China uh, wants to be big, powerful, and, uh, you know, a, a country that can't be pushed around. And many of those aspirations are similar to ours. And yet we express a lot of uh, alarm when China articulates that. You know, one of the points that I've often made is that when the United States says, you know, make America great again, uh, and again, under the leadership of the last uh, the president, President Trump, um, you know, a good swath of our nation is fine with that. And I think all Americans are, are fine with the idea of America being a great country or even the greatest country. But when China says we, we want to see the, reju the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, translated as make China great again, then we have a serious problem with that. Um, and I get it. Um, China's values are very different. They do things that are very, very problematic for our nation. But um, I think fundamentally what we're seeing now is a world in which, uh, you know, U U.S. superpowerdom is starting to be something that people can imagine could come to an end, um, as the, meaning the U.S. as the sole superpower of the world. And that is, that is an anxious moment for the United States, and it is a transitional moment potentially for the world. And um, the point that I really emphasize is that if the United States is intent upon remaining the, the superpower in the world, then we have to focus on us and enhance our own capabilities uh, rather than trying to drag down uh, the other countries, because clearly that strategy doesn't work. Uh, real quickly, I would be more concerned 
if China struck an alliance uh, or reserve currency status or some kind of currency status with India, uh, it seems highly unlikely. But to me, that would be a bigger threat uh, swaying something like India than Russia. How would you respond quickly? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And but but as you note, you know, it's le- less likely because China India relations are not where China Russia relations are. And of course, India is part of the Quad and is kind of part of. Uh, a, a, a system of um, relationships that the United States has with significant countries in the Asian region um, where um, a, ma- a major goal of uh, a lot of the activities of those networks of countries is to constrain China and to limit China's uh, ability to project power and India is a part of that. So while I think your point is well taken, I agree with you that the likelihood of that happening anytime in the foreseeable future is low. Yeah, I think that would just signal a major shift. Like, you know, you might can see a path for U.S. I mean, China, Russia. Like, okay, that's concerning. But if they were to strike up with India, that would be like, oh wow, we have really seen power dynamics um, at play. Um, the old world, if you will, is gone. Okay, I do want to talk about values for just a second here. Um, you know, we've had you know guests on them talk about China, and the biggest thing that comes up is stealing. Um, not the biggest thing, but one of the biggest things is stealing. Yeah. Okay, and so let me parse this out for you and let you respond. Um, stealing military technology is on one end of the spectrum, but there's been times where people have brought up stealing like ag tech, and I'm not trying to make um, stealing okay, so just put that caveat there, but I'm also a little concerned that we, if we inflate military technology with ag tech, because China can't feed its own people, um, and if you've been around extreme poverty, people will do a lot to avoid that. And so how do we think through these issues? Both are wrong, but, but one is not the same. It seems, and to conflate them um, makes it harder to unpack what the real damage is here. Yeah. It's a really thoughtful question, Ryan. And um, let let me say a couple of things, because I, I I actually have um, talked about this a little bit in some of my recent talks. Uh, You know, one of the differences between um, the United States and China among many profound differences, is that um, we have different definitions of what is okay to steal. So, but here's the point that I think is often lost on, on um, many Americans who, you know, uh, who comment on this set of issues. As a matter of policy and as a matter of practice, the United States believes it is okay to steal stuff from China. There's no question about that. It's called espionage. Uh, it's uh, called. We, 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 just to be clear, yeah, we we I pound on those hypocrisies all the time, but yes, it's it, it's it's not a one way street here. Yes, no, exactly. And and, esp- and and we engage in espionage, and China engages in espionage, and Russia does too, in all directions, and so do so do Canada and France and 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 every country in the world that has these capabilities. So we all agree it is okay to steal whatever you can get away with stealing within certain parameters. Now we define, we in the United States define those parameters in a particular way. We say that it is okay to steal military secrets. That is exactly what espionage is supposed to do. We try to do it relative to China. China tries to do it relative to us. It is a crime in both countries. And if someone is caught doing it, they will go to prison for life or be executed and so on and so forth. But we don't deny that 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 espionage is a legitimate, a legitimate activity of a government relative to another nation. But here's the difference. We then say 
that it's okay to steal military secrets. It's okay to steal um, sensitive national security information. It's okay to try to get someone to provide uh, through espionage uh, classified information uh, that by law should not be revealed, but we try to get it from them. They try to get it from us. And that's the way the game is played. But we then say, but you can't do that relative to commercial data and commercial information, commercially valuable intellectual property, uh, Boeing, uh, you know, blueprints for new, new, new plane designs and so on and so forth. And the list goes on, ag tech, et cetera. But China does not accept that definition. Uh, that, that is a, we, we kind of draw a line. China regards that line as arbitrary. They don't accept it. Um, so um, we put a fence around what's okay to steal and what's not okay to steal. And China doesn't accept where that fence is drawn. And so they steal things that we think they shouldn't steal. Um, and it's problematic for our nation and it's unfortunate. And if anyone can come up with a solution to the problem that isn't worse than the problem, then God bless them. Uh, but most administrations, both Republicans and Democrats, have not been able to do that because in many ways, the solutions to these problems can often be worse than the problems themselves. But this is something that I think we have to grapple with, is that China simply does not accept our, in a sense, arbitrary definition. And we have to recognize that they are never going to accept our definition. They are going to continue to regard as legitimate targets that we regard as illegitimate. And we have to recognize that and devise a strategy to cope with that. Because I think at this point in time, we have to recognize that any efforts that we've made over the last several decades to get them to accept our definition have failed. And they're not going to succeed as we go forward. Therefore, we have to get better at playing defense. And, you know, it's kind of a no holds barred area. Um, we steal from them. They steal from us. They steal much more commercial stuff from us because we're more advanced and have been more advanced than them. And we're going to have to do a serious rethink about this. But, um, you know, I think we, we have to recognize that what we're talking about is where the line is drawn. And there is they just don't accept where we draw that line. Yeah. And, and so the, the problem becomes um, with this entire issue, which is if the line is drawn arbitrarily, which I agree it is, they are crossing the line. And we know that they believe that they're going that they believe in crossing the line. Right. Um, how do you avoid um, overly profiling um, to protect the line that you're that you've drawn? Well, I, I think you you avoid it by uh, by looking at actions rather than ethnicity. Um, you know, we've seen efforts in this country that have targeted people based on ethnicity, no question about it, not even nationality, because in many cases we were talking about Chinese, ethnically Chinese American citizens. And we saw what happened with the so-called China Initiative, um, which is still largely ongoing, albeit under a different name because they, the powers that be decided that that name was in the, of the initiative was inappropriate. But we've also seen hundreds of people's careers ruined with essentially no convictions uh, ever generated by a U.S. court of law. Um, and so, you know, there's been a huge amount of criticism from members of Congress, from other groups in this country uh, about uh, the notion of profiling and about the notion of 
you know, kind of uh, yielding to McCarthyist tendencies to sort of say, you know, what allegiance does this ethnically Chinese person have to the United States versus to China? And the problem with it is that um, U.S. courts of law have rejected in almost every single case uh, the notion that there was wrongdoing in most of these uh, indictments that were issued uh, or investigations that were conducted. And so I think in the end, we have to get back to the a very fundamental value of marshalling evidence and saying, here's the evidence of wrongdoing and let's prosecute on the basis of evidence of wrongdoing rather than on the basis of suspicions generated by the individual's ethnicity or last name or the way their last name sounds and so on and so forth. I mean, that is an ugly aspect of, of our nation historically, and uh, it's reared its head in, the, in recent years. Um, and we've just got to get better at focusing on wrongdoing. If someone does something illegal, they should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. No question about it. If someone steals something uh, under U.S. law, they should be punished for it. It's wrong. Um, and, uh, but again, we've got to focus on actions, not on ethnicity. And I think we've fallen down as a nation in recent years on that. I hope we get back up and do the right thing. There's a quote I'm going to read to you um, from Batman versus Superman, because why else? Um, and it says, he, talking, this is Batman speaking about Superman. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race. And if we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty and we have to destroy him. Now, I'm not claiming that anyone's espousing that about China, Russia, etc. But I do think that that mentality of the potential for fear is there, and it, it really skews these conversations. And so you might listen to this and go, well, we're being too hard on the U.S. or too hard on the China. I would just say that, first off, uh, we, I mean, we've talked offline a lot about this, but the hypocrisy from both sides is just nauseating from my perspective because it's off the charts yeah there, 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 so there is um to your point about stealing uh, i make this point all the time but I'll, I'll make it to you um you know lying in this country to a federal agent is a crime unless you're the federal agent lying to the person and so the hypocrisy when we start unrolling these back it's not about being pro-america or anti-america or pro-china or anti-china it's about saying what are the actual ethics involved what are the laws what should be changed but this worldview that, that, that many people have and, and is, is concerning, which is they are a threat. Therefore we should be prepared to go to war. So well, what makes them a threat? What ways are they a threat? How do you actually impact that? And those are very difficult questions to ask. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to make light of the conversation by bringing in Batman versus Superman. I'm just simply saying that it seems in the popular uh, rhetoric that, that it's a lot closer to that Batman quote <laughs> than it is the more nuanced conversation. That's very difficult and time consuming to have. And, and yeah. to me, that's the frustrating thing about this conversation is that it's very nuanced and it's very hard to understand. And yeah. I'm certainly no expert on it, but, but people like yourself who are, it's like, man, it takes a long time to understand these issues and to, to, to understand how to talk about them in an intelligent way. Well, I agree with that. And, you know, our politics is driving it and it's all bumper sticker stuff. And, um, you know, there's there's a ratcheting effect that we see in U.S. rhetoric around China. So that if somebody says China's horrible, then the only place you can go with that is to say, well, no, I disagree. I think China's even more horrible than you think. And the third person comes out and says, no, you're both wrong. It's actually much worse than either of you are even saying it. They're really, really horrible. And no one can be politically, whether Republican or Democrat in this country, can be the person that says, wait a minute, China's 
not horrible. They're bad, but they're not horrible. In other words, if you take the debate back in that moderate direction, then you're going to be punished for that in the context of the U.S. political process. And it's across the partisan aisle at this point. It started mostly with the Republicans and in the sort of the Trump period. But now it is it is such a potent type of rhetoric uh, and such a potent and sensitive issue that it's become fully bipartisan. Um, you know, as I often quip, you know, if you had a vote at, in the United States House of Representatives as to whether apple pie is good, you'd have 218 for and 217 against. <laughs> but if you had a vote as to whether China is the embodiment of all evil in the history of humanity, you'd have 435 to zero. Not because 435 people feel that way. A lot of them do. A lot of them do. But but because the ones that don't feel that way are not going to are not going to vote against that because they understand that they would be destroyed politically for articulating a more nuanced view to your really excellent point. So, you know, China is a formidable competitor. It's the most formidable competitor we'll ever face. There's no question about that. But I but um, the notion that it poses an existential threat to our nation I don't buy it. And and most people that know China well don't buy it. The people that propagate that particular point of view are generally people that actually don't know much about China, haven't spent time there, don't know much about the culture, the language, the people, the politics, never really had um, uh, an organic, unscripted conversation with a regular Chinese person in many cases, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a skewing of, of, of perspective and the politics skew and ratchet uh, the rhetoric in a particular direction. But I'll say this, Ryan, I think in this country we face two potentially existential threats. Um, and one of them is the untethering of political and public policy discourse from factual reality. Uh, going back to your point about lying and and getting away from the facts. I mean, most recently we see this now with the conspiracy theories that are generated around uh, the the assault, the vicious assault on Paul Pelosi in San Francisco. But, you know, we've got 70 percent of the Republican Party that doesn't believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. There's 43 percent of the American people, according to Pew and Gallup, that uh, don't that, that don't know whether that say they don't they don't know for sure whether Parkland or Sandy Hook actually happened. And 34 percent of our nation apparently has said that they embrace all or some of QAnon theory. I mean, we are out of our mind. We have we're in la la land, and we're competing against folks that are not in la la land. So that's a serious problem, and it's been unleashed by the social media. It's been unleashed by the Trump movement, um, where we have seen. I mean, again, uh, three hundred plus election deniers running for public office in this country today, and the data points go on. But here's the second challenge. Um, the second existential challenge I think we face in this country is we're starting to see a serious corrosion in U.S. trust, in the, in the trust of the U.S. public in our constitutional processes to deliver outcomes that are seen as morally legitimate and that are seen as reflective of the will of the majority of the American people. We're starting to lose faith as a nation in our system, and American polling has documented that trend line for some years now. Those are the things that keep me up at night. China is a, is a problem from a U.S. standpoint. They would say we're a problem from their standpoint. But yeah, China is a problem, but it's not an existential problem. The ones that I've just described are the ones where I wonder, uh, how do we course correct? Because if we can't fix those two problems, 
China is going to end up being the least of our concerns. Okay, I know we're up against the clock here, and you unpacked like 47 topics there. So uh, I would just simply, uh, I'm going to give you the last words. I'll say this. I think that the misinformation thing obviously is important and is a concern, um, but, but I think that's, I think that the tactics both parties use, and, um, you know, if we wanted to spend two or three hours on that topic alone, we probably could, but um, there's plenty on the right, but there's also plenty on the, on the left. I mean, I could go through uh, countless things that the left does. Um, and, and how it, it promotes propaganda um, from a certain perspective, and then moves on, and then deny, and then and almost mocks people who track the propaganda that, that, they, that they've espoused. And so, um, the Biden administration, with, with its energy policy, is is completely laughable um, at how it goes overseas and talks about needs oil and gas investment, and then comes back here and crushes oil and gas companies. And um, I, I go on for hours on that. So I, I'm with you, but I think that's a dual party problem that both parties have to start. Quit pointing the finger so much and say, hey, you know what? Let's take care of our own house because it goes both ways. With that being said, um, I always love talking to you. It's great talking to you. Give a minute, two minutes about the current work of the foundation. Uh, we can talk about that. So I want you to plug that. Um, it's the, you know one of the, I always say the high points of my career is getting to be tied up with you guys. I don't know why you have me, but I'm thankful. I always say that. And so I want you guys to promote what, what um, what's going on with the foundation right now. Well, it's always a pleasure and a privilege, Ryan, to, to be with you. And I look forward to doing this again. And you and I never run out of topics to talk about. No question about that. Um, and thank you again for the opportunity. And in terms of the Bush China Foundation, I, I think we're doing some really exciting things. Um, you know, we have uh, launched some new initiatives, a cross-generational dialogue uh, between American and Chinese uh, Gen Z folks that we've recently received U.S. government uh, funding for a State Department grant. Uh, for some really innovative work that's getting a lot of attention now in terms of uh, Gen Z type folks that are becoming uh, very interested in the work that we're doing in this area and getting involved. We have um, a great uh, dialogue uh, between the United States and China on the topic of mental health. Again, off the beaten track, we're trying to find areas where we can have constructive dialogue that is not too political because of the constraints on both sides. And, you know, we'd love to do anything and everything, but we recognize that we, we're not going to be able to move the needle on you know a lot of the big political disagreements. And so we try to focus in on niche issues. But this dialogue on U.S.-China mental health and digital mental health uh, delivery is a really interesting area that we're in. Uh, we continue to be involved in um, creating channels of communication between political leaders in the two countries. Uh, if for no other reason than each side can kind of uh, update the other side on what's happening politically and offer candid and often critical views on uh, policies of the other side. Uh, so it's not just a kind of kumbaya, you know, type session, but rather a chance for very candid and very unscripted remarks where people can share, learn, criticize, uh, be honest, be open. And we do that uh, in ways that involve um, both prominent Republicans, prominent uh, Democrats, and also senior leaders uh, from the communist party. Um, we, um, are doing um, quite a bit of work with Chinese academic organizations such as Peking University and Tsinghua University um, and um, engaging in dialogues on everything from, uh, at the time, uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan to more recently the topic of Taiwan. In fact, we recently did an event where we had representation from the mainland and Taiwan and the United States on a, uh, an off-the-record call that we had 
So we're, we're doing a lot of different things, a lot of writing, a lot of op-eds, a lot of uh, public speaking across the country, a lot of nonpartisan issue advocacy uh, and public education. Um, we have a podcast. Uh, and I would say for a team our size, we're punching above our weight class in terms of the overall amount of output uh, and doing the best that we can to uh, be fact-based and to be in um, in the space that George H.W. Bush was in, our namesake. Uh, he believed two things about the U.S.-China relationship. Number one, that it's the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And number two, that virtually no global problem that matters can be resolved in the absence of coordination and cooperation between the United States and China. And whether we like it or not, we're kind of bound to each other, the two nations. And we take those views forward. We're very proud to honor the George H.W. Bush legacy and to do some constructive things that I think are very clear eyed about, you know, what we're dealing with and the relationship, but that are still um, committed uh, to and tethered to the idea that um, whether we like it or not, we've got to work together out of self-interest. So that's where we are. And we're really excited and we're really lucky to have you as part of our team. And um, uh, I think some great things are ahead of us uh, both for the remainder of this year and into 2023. Yeah. And I just want to say, just to echo that, that the thing I love about the foundation is that you do have all sorts of perspectives and views and, and you guys always allow that. And that's in today's, in today's climate, that's, that's not allowed, which is why we have this podcast. I do this podcast is to hear different perspectives on China or whatever the issue is. And so it's, it's good to be tied up with the organization that um, believes in that as well. Okay. We will link to the foundation's website in the show notes, um, the podcast, all that stuff. It was so good to speak with you. Uh, look forward to talking soon. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ryan. You're awesome. I always enjoy it and look forward to the next one. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.